0: We are moving through the book of Isaiah, and we got the treat of being in Isaiah 9, 1-7 last week, and we're picking right up at Isaiah 9, 8 this week. We'll re- read uh, and be preaching on 9, 8 all the way through the end of chapter 10. If you um, don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you that looks like this, and uh, you can p- find our passage on page 573, page 573 of the Bible in the rack in front of you. And uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 9, 8 through the end of 10. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in the arrogance of their heart, the bricks have fallen But we'll build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place. But Yahweh raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of Yahweh of hosts. So Yahweh cut off from Israel, head and tail, palm, branch, and reed. In one day, the elder and honored men, honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who... Guide this people, have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, But are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they're against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous degrees. And the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not yet turned turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets but he does not so intend and his heart does not so think but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few for he says are not my commanders all kings is not Calno like Karkmish is not Hamath like Arpad is not Samaria like Damascus as my hand has, rolled to, has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says... By the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom. For I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I've gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who's not wood? Therefore the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will send wasting sickness amongst his stout warriors, and under His glory, a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars In one day the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land. Yahweh will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away the remnant of the trees of his forest it will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord Yahweh of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod or lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed at their destruction. And Yahweh of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Orb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it, as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Iath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They've crossed over the pass. At Geba they'd lodge for the night. Rama trembles. Gibe of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Gallam, Give attention, O Lashah, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gabim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He'll shake his fists at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Can be seen as we pray. Father, we've just sung how we can overcome, endure in this world with rejoicing, not through our own strength, but through Christ. And that song just echoes the truths we're about to hear, and so we pray that the word we've just read, and as we linger over it now, and songs that reflect on it, remain in our brains, that your Holy Spirit would take these things and sow them deep within us and shape us and fashion us by your word. So would your spirit work in might now? We pray and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you three questions that might seem unrelated. What do you fear? What do you trust? How do you live? By what do you fear, I'm not thinking of uh, spiders or clowns. I'm thinking about those fears that really grip you, that control you, that drive you. Maybe the fear of losing someone's approval or poverty or fractured relationships. By what do you trust, I don't mean just, ah, they're trustworthy, they probably don't lie. This is not like nurses versus car salesmen or something like that. I'm talking about what do you really rely on where do you look when you have need what do you trust and of course how do you live i'm not thinking about you know your lifestyle job you have the house you own I'm thinking about your character and your ethics Like I said, these three questions might seem unrelated, but they actually are closely related. And these three questions are at the heart of what our passage is speaking to this morning. So that's why I want to start with those questions. So as we turn to our passage and hear what God's saying in light of those things, we can be examining our own hearts. Now... Those of you who know me like, no, I love many sports, but I don't love golf. And if there's something worse than playing golf, it's watching golf on television. Those of you who do that, I, I don't know how you do it. But I have seen a little bit of golf on television, and I know this that before a grouping starts on a certain hole, they'll often do kind of a a flyover of the whole hole. So you can kind of see what the whole hole looks like. So then when you go and watch the golfer hacking at the ball, you know, is he doing well? Is he doing badly? What's going on? So that big picture helps you understand the smaller action. So I I actually want to start with just kind of a, a quick flyover of the whole passage. It's a big passage. It can feel a bit unwieldy. So let's get a sense of the whole, and then we'll circle back and kind of go more slowly through the action. So there are, um, there are three main sections in our, in our passage. And the first section, which begins in 9.8 and runs all the way through 10.4, God is telling Israel that he is bringing judgment upon her. Now, Israel gets used a couple different ways in the Bible, but specifically, there was two kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. There had been a division in the whole nation of Israel. And so now this northern kingdom, Ephraim, Samaria, is being, that's what I mean by Israel. And God is saying, because of your sins, my hand stretched out against you. And in this section, there's that little refrain. We saw it four times as I was reading it. You might have noticed at the end of 12, at the end of 17, at the end of 21, and at the end of 4 for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still so god has put the sin of israel under the microscope and he's saying because of this because of who you are and your stubbornness not to hear me and respond to me that's why judgment is coming god's coming judgment god's judgment is coming on israel Israel's sin is under the microscope. But that judgment is coming through by means of the nation Assyria. And so, starting in verse 5 of chapter 10 and all the way through 19, God turns to Assyria and says, judgment is also coming upon you. God is not just the God of of Israel, he's the God of all the nations, and now Assyria's sin are under the microscope. Sins are under the microscope. He's bringing that into focus, and he's rebuking them for their sin and saying judgment is coming. There are two speeches of Assyria in this section. One you find starting in verse eight and going through verse eleven. And the other one, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 14. And those two speeches kind of form seams. So there's really three, three stanzas in this middle section. Um, so that's, that's the, the words to Assyria. But all this is leading somewhere. These two sections on the sins of Israel and the sins of Assyria. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where uh, a child comes to you. And says, Remember how last week you didn't make Susie eat her beans during dinner? And remember how I really don't like carrots? And you know how I love the dessert that mom's making for dinner tonight? You know what's happening. These aren't just random questions. The child isn't super curious about your memory of how dinner unfolded last week. It's leading somewhere. And these first two sections that put Israel's sin on the microscope and Assyria's sin on the microscope are leading somewhere. They come on the heels of What Stephen preached on last week, this this child, king, savior, deliverer, who's going to come and rescue, our faith should be in him, that should be where our confidence is, and here we look at Assyria, and here we look at, at Israel, and then Assyria, and then Isaiah comes and delivers his message, verses 20. To 27, verses 28 to 34 are just going to talk about how Assyria is going to come in and move its way through Judah and ultimately God's going to lop off Assyria. But the real prophetic message is in verses 20 to 27. And you see the two key questions or two key issues in verse 20. In that day, the remnant of the house of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them that is the nations around them, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Who do you trust? What do you trust? He's saying, what's gone up to this point is because of who Israel's been trusting. Verse 24 Therefore thus says Lord Yahweh of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. What do you fear? Look at Israel and what happened. Look at Assyria And what happened? Who do you trust? What are you afraid of? When when Israel trusts and fears a certain way, destruction comes. When Assyria is trusting in certain things and fearing in certain ways, Destruction comes. And so Isaiah is pleading with his people, pleading with us from these examples, who will we trust? Who will we fear? Of course, those things will affect then how we live. So that's the flyover. We get a sense for the the whole hole on the golf course and now we can return to the action and of course if you've been following along in our time in Isaiah you know what's been going on that Israel had experienced this long time of stability and prosperity and now it's all been shattered turbulent times have come upon them and this nation that was just kind of up here to the north has grown powerful the Assyrians are coming in and the northern tribes of Ephraim or often called Ephraim but the northern 10 tribes are are scared. What are we going to do? But they don't look to the Lord. Their eyes are more fear, focused on the threat of the Assyrians than they are on God. There's a key phrase in chapter 10 verse 18. There it's speaking of the Assyrians, but it has principles throughout this whole thing where it says how the Lord Yahweh can destroy both soul and body. The northern tribes have lost sight of that. It's how they should respond, look to God, but that they're not trusting him. That ship has sailed a long time ago. Back in Israel's history, when the northern tribes split off from the southern tribes, and they rejected God's king, the Davidic king, and God's appointed place of worship, the temple, they said, no, we're going to build our own altars. And then they kind of started following their own religion, their own rules, all saying, we're following Yahweh. This is Yahweh-anity, but totally separated from what God has said. They haven't been leaning on him or trusting in him for a long time. So that's where we find ourselves. And so what does God have to say to that? Look kind of stanza by stanza in that first section. Talks about Israel's sin. So the first stanza, verses 8 to 12. Why? Why is Israel gone this direction? Well, there's a certain cavalier, arrogant attitude towards God where they think God's got my back. No matter what I do, no matter how I live, He's for me. God's always nice, nice, nice. He's not really against anything except for maybe my enemies. But he's got my back. So even when my friends abandon me, even when I don't believe in myself, God still believes in me. It's arrogance. It's like God's there, me at the center, him serving me. And so they have this view like, oh, our bricks come down. We'll have these nice, dressed stones we put in their place. Our inferior sycamore logs come down. Trees come down. Well, We'll just import the the cedars of Lebanon. When life gives me lemons, make lemonade. You can certainly admire some of that pluck. That kind of thinking isn't necessarily always wrong. But you have somebody who's in cardiac arrest and you're thinking, where's my vial of essential oils? You're thinking the wrong way. Hey, this is not a domestic quarrel. (laughs) Israel has been so stubborn and resisting God and God is sending the lemons for a reason. To show them that they've moved away from him. And so if they keep going, everything's going to be all right, we're going to to be able to put things together, we'll put the, the hewn stones, the dress stones back in place, they're missing the point. They have a wrong view of God that doesn't realize he can actually be against them in judgment because of their stubborn rebellion against them. Why are we in cardiac arrest? Why are we on life support? We need to understand those root causes. And God is trying to get our attention, and yet we stubbornly say, nope, God's for us. Nope, I don't care what you have to say. I know, God's for us. We're gonna be okay. It's a wrong view of God. Where does that come from? I think the next stanza gives a sense for that. Verses 13 to 17 He says, the real issue is that there's a rottenness from head to tail. The whole of Israel is rotten. But then he defines what the head is. The leaders and the elders. And then he defines what the rear end is. The prophets, the preachers. who have been prophesying. Do you see what it says about them? Verse 15. Prophet who teaches lies. Those who guide the people, leading them astray. We want preachers who are just going to keep telling us how God's for us. Doesn't matter that we cut off the king, the Messiah, the Davidic line. Doesn't matter that we're cut off from God's temple. Doesn't matter if we've kind of rejected everything he said up to this point in the scriptures. We're the people of Yahweh. We're good. Let's gather prophets for us who are just going to keep building us up and affirming us and telling us how sweet we are. While the storm is raging, they're singing a lullaby to get the baby to sleep. But in this case, that's not what's needed. Because they're prophesying lies. They're misrepresenting God. And the leaders, the elders, they're all complicit. In fact, the rot goes all the way through. You know, if if there's one thing, you, you read the Old Testament, you read the whole scriptures, there's one thing you know, you know about Yahweh. It's that his heart is for the fatherless and the widow. And yet here it says, it's so bad in Israel that even those marginalized are are complicit in the wickedness. It's so bad God can't even be defending them. The whole thing has gone to pot. God's. his hands outstretched still. And there's a sense in the refrain that we're hearing. It's like God wants to remove his hand. He wants them to turn. But even as he sends more and more, they just keep going and they keep going. So where does all this lead? The third stanza, verse 18 to 21 of chapter 9. Where does it all lead? Well, I want you to think back to what happened right after sin came into the world. Adam and Eve are at odds with one another, blaming each other, a blame game. He's responsible, she's responsible. No, the snake's responsible. And then shortly after that, we see a brother turn and kill his brother. strife, discord within brothers. It's part and parcel of what sin does. Divides bring strife. You know, we don't need politicians pitting class against class, race against race, gender against gender. We don't need social theorists explaining how those with privilege should be at odds with those who, or are at odds with those who are marginalized and oppressed. The human heart tells us this. We're at odds with one another. There is division. We are riddled with it. It's what sin does to us. It's notable that when Jesus comes, Ephesians 2 tells us he came to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Because when Christ comes, these people who are at odds with one another, where sin has brought discord and strife, Jesus deals with that sin, and he allows us to come together as one. Jesus is the only way for that to be overcome. And so it's not surprising that Psalm 133 extols how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Because when you see that, it means the antidote to sin is there. There's gospel work happening there. But not so in Israel. As God's fire comes upon them and starts to burn them, what it looks like is brother turning against brother. So within Ephraim, there is discord as people fight with one another. And then, as we learned, they want, they want Judah to join an alliance, and that's not working. So they go, and there's civil war within the northern and southern tribes right around the time Isaiah's prophesying. And he's saying, look, the way you guys turn against one another is evidence of God's judgment upon you. It's evidence that there's sin here. I love that imagery. It's like you're eating your own arm. You're devouring your brother, your own family. God's wrath is often like that. We, we our, our hearts are bent towards evil far more than we realize, and God's restraining grace is holding us back. It's like it's like the kid throwing a tantrum trying to run away from his dad and his dad's got a good grip on him. He's holding and holding and holding. Kid doesn't know the destruction he's headed for. Dad's holding on. Maybe Dad lets go and poof, right into the mud or whatever it is, right? Oh, that's where I was headed. Dad was actually trying to help me. It's often how God's wrath works. Okay? You're stubbornly pulling against me, turning on me, rejecting me. I'm just going to move my hand just a little bit. So you take one further step, one further lurch towards your depravity, and you can see the destruction that brings the heart that you would turn back and run to me and then that last stanza dealing with Israel's sin it's chapter 10 verses 1 to 4 this talks about how it gets fleshed out so when we stop looking to Yahweh in truth just kind of lip service looking to him and start kind of doing religion our way, and our prophets and our preachers and our people who write decrees are, are doing it their way instead of God's way, it leads to a way of living that's terrible. Um, one of the best indicators of, of who we really are is how we treat those we have power over, those who are vulnerable. They don't have a recourse. We can do with them as we want. And that indicates who we are, how we treat those who we have power over. And so that's why repeatedly in Scripture, when God is calling out sin in his people or in other nations, he says, look how you treat the poor. Look how you treat the fatherless. Look how you treat the widow. You oppress them. You take advantage of them. And a society that drifts away from God, no matter how moral they pretend to be, will inevitably be hurting those who are weakest. So for all this, His anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Of course, as we know from chapters 7 and 8 and as we know from the scripture reading we just did, how is God going to bring the judgment on Israel? It's through that nation, Assyria. And so now, God turns his his voice to Assyria from 10.5 to 10.19. He's talking to Assyria now. As I said before, God is not just the judge or the God of Israel. He's the God of all nations. It's a theme that runs throughout the book of Isaiah. And so now God says, all right, Asira, you you are my rod. I was raising you against Israel to bring judgment, but you are thinking about it completely wrong. The way you self-understand what's going on is different than what God's actually doing. I think that's an interesting, by the way, Uh, This is an interesting place where we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility brought together. So Assyria is freely choosing to be a destructive, oppressive nation that's greedy and wants to take territory and destroy people. And God says, that is part of my sovereign plan to raise you up in judgment on my people who continue after hundreds of years in rebellion against me. Sure enough, Assyria did sack the northern tribes in 722 BC. But now Assyria is learning about their problem because Assyria is is so wicked in how they think about things. And we see this in their two speeches. So their first speech, I just want you to look at chapter 10, verse 10. He says basically that Yahweh is just an idol and a weaker idol than the other nations. As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? God's not real. Yahweh's not. We've conquered other idols stronger than her, him. So we're going to conquer Jerusalem as well. Conquer Samaria. And then, just the, the, the complete unawareness that there's a creator God and, and he's being wielded in that creator God's hands. A sense that I've done this. I have the strength. So in the second speech, you can pick up in verse 13, by the strength of my hand I've done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. He says, it's as easy as going to an abandoned nest and plucking eggs. That's how easy it is for me to do whatever I want. This is a a nation that is rooted in complete arrogance. Israel, at least, pretended to be following a God, but this, this Assyrian empire, it's complete. I trust myself. I'm the one who did this. I have the strength. And God's rebuke starting in verse 15 is so profound. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? You see what's going on? There's a complete, there's no sense that there's a creator and I'm the created. And once you have that lost, that sense that There is a creator who has made the axe for a purpose or forms the clay for a purpose. Now I write my own destiny. I am at the top. I'm the one who does what I think is right. And God says because of that, Assyria also will be judged and destroyed. We see it described here, and then we see it described again at the end of the chapter. They're going to come in. They're going to... They're going to surround and conquer the northern kingdom. They'll go all the way up to the neck, all the way up to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, but then God is going to lop them off. And that happens in a few stages in history. They initially do go all the way up to Jerusalem and flee away. Then they try again, and ultimately, they're a conquered nation never to rise again. But all these words where sin's under the microscope and judgments is coming, whether it's to Israel or to Syria, are leading somewhere. The kid's going to say, so can I skip my carrots tonight and still have dessert? And the prophet Isaiah has been setting us up for the words we need to hear. He doesn't want us to have the same trusts and the same fears that ruined Israel and Assyria. He wants instead for us to have the right trusts and the right fear so that we can be established in God's good kingdom. So, that's verses 20 to 27. In verses 20 to 23, he's really concerned with who, what is what is the defining trait of the remnant? The people that God is ultimately going to rescue and restore and establish in his new perfect kingdom. What is the defining trait of them? And we saw it when I read earlier in verse when I read it earlier in verse 20. They'll lean instead of they'll no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel in truth. What about us? What do we trust? What do we lean on? Saying the defining trait. Think think back to the the child, king, savior, deliverer of chapter 9, verse 1 to 7, who's coming. Are we leaning on him? Are we leaning on anything else in this world? And then in verses 24 to 27, he makes his appeal. And really, it's, it's, it's very simple. O my people, verse 24, who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod because God's going to deal with them. This, this refrain or this, this phrase, be not afraid, is actually, if you think of our section that starts in chapter 7 and runs all the way through chapter 12, it's a very key phrase. So look at chapter 7, verse 4. This was back when Isaiah was talking to the southern kingdom and their king Ahaz, and he says, verse 4 of chapter 7, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, the prophet says, do not, or Yahweh says through the prophet, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now, verses 20 to 27, they're primarily dealing with the fact that Israel itself, or the southern tribe now, so Judah, God's going to rescue them. He's saying, you don't have to be afraid because I'm going to rescue you. There's going to be a day coming when I'm going to bring an end to the Assyrians, and I'm going to establish you guys back in the land, and you'll be good. It's primarily what's in view. That's why verses 29 to 34 describe that happening. Assyria coming into the land, doing all sorts of bad things, and then being cut off. But there, there, are, there are hints that Isaiah is telling, giving us that indicate he actually has a bit more in mind than just that small day when the Assyrians were conquered. And the first hint is in verse 21, when he says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That phrase, mighty God, occurs only three times in the whole Old Testament. Two of them are right here in Isaiah. Do you remember who the child king, Savior Deliver, or Savior deliverer was referred to? What was he called? He was called mighty God. So here he says, they're returning, and it's the... The one they're returning to is actually what I'm talking about is this this child king, savior, deliverer. They're not they're not distinctions. The, this small day when they're turning to God is, is the same as in the great day when they're turning to the child king, savior, deliver. Hint number one. Hint number two comes in verse 23 when he says, For the Lord Yahweh of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Now you could say he's just making a full end of Assyria. But it seems like he's indicating there's, there's something bigger going on. And there's something, he's going somewhere bigger. There's a complete end to the enemies and to the destruction. The most clear indication perhaps is in verses 26 and 27. When he describes this day and he says... He's going to bring the destruction that he brought on Midian at the Rock of Orb. Stephen reminded us in chapter 9 that that same language is used in chapter 9, verse 4, the day of Midian, and he reminded us of the story of Gideon, where Gideon's cowering, and God says, no, you're going to be the one to deliver him, and then the forces are thinned and thinned and thinned to only 300. So here's an echo of that same story. saying, just, just like the child king, savior, deliver is going to bring victory, so it's going to be like that. And then he also talks about the burden departing from the shoulder and the yoke being lifted. Again, this is echoes of what was happening in to 7 9.4 specifically. So it shouldn't surprise us that next week, as we look at verses eleven or chapters eleven and twelve, that's where, that's where the prophet goes. This is about a much bigger victory. And so what Israel's being told specific to them and their situation, I think, applies to all of us, as we wait for God's ultimate victory to come. Who do we fear? Who do we trust? How do we live? I said those questions were related. What do we fear? Of course, the Assyrians were um, were were something worth fearing. They were a strong, mighty, terrible army. And as we know, they were actually gonna come and do terrible things. And God's not saying, don't fear them. He's not saying nothing bad could possibly happen. He's talking about ultimate controlling, driving fears. I thought of um, an image of somebody in, in Central Park And and there's a robber, so they're running away from the robber. But this is a science fiction movie, and King Kong's right there. And they're running right into King Kong as they run away from a robber. Like, It's not that that's not something that's fearful, but there's something so much bigger. This is really about how do we view God. And when when you're zoomed in on the camera and you see us and you see this kind of bad guy over here, the Assyrians, or whatever it is that's a fear in your life, it does seem pretty big. But then when you span out and you behold the Holy One of Israel, who's so much stronger, who's the creator God, who is the mighty God, who is the Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of, of the armies of heaven, all of a sudden this guy who seems so much bigger isn't so big. But here's what happens when, when we, when we stop seeing the big picture and now we're only focused in on this temporal world and the fears of this world, no matter how valid or real or, or huge they seem, but that's all our focus is, then we're no longer going to look to the God, creator God for our trust. Get our fear wrong, and we'll get our trust wrong. Misaligned fear will lead to misaligned trust. The smallness of God on the fear axis will lead to the smallness of God on the trust axis. When we fear the created things most, then when we're in trouble, where are we going to look to for help? We're going to look to the created things. And so Isaiah is just pleading with us to say, see the Holy One of Israel. He ultimately should be your fear and your dread. Because when he is and you see him in all his strength, then you can trust him and entrust yourself to him. And then when we're looking to him, he's, we're looking to his word, we're letting his prophets guide us, and we, we live the right way. In a way that will allow us to be a people who are his remnant, established, knowing and trusting his child king, savior, deliverer. Jesus. So what is our view of God, Maple Avenue? With all the different things that are trying to grab your heart and grab your mind and cause you to be focused on this world and all the fears that are here, what do we fear? It's going to determine what we trust. And that will shape how we live. Do we trust, lean on, wholly Jesus, that child, king, savior, deliverer? Or, like Israel, are we. God's for me no matter what. I'm good. I don't really need to look to him. This kind of man made religion. Or, like the Assyrians were like, no, I got this. I got it all together. I trust myself. I trust my own understanding, my own strength. Perhaps another way we could ask the question is what is our cornerstone? Is that we're building everything on. Is it Christ alone? Let's pray. God, help us to see you rightly. I know that there are so many foreboding, fearful things in our lives collectively and, and in the individual lives of each one of us here. that want to take our eyes off the, the bigness of our God and down to the temporal world where we're preoccupied and subsumed with it. Help us instead to look to Christ and be not afraid. Amen.